Today we're going to talk about something that has been synonymous with 2020. And I'll tell you what that is after I pray. Gracious, loving Lord, it's a miracle to come to the end of a year, especially like this one, and find that there's room in our lives where Christ has been busy, where he has inhabited our thoughts, where in the midst of information wars and misinformation and deception, in the midst of a world gone mad, it is so good to know that above all the din and noise of humanity, we can still hear the voice of divinity. And so, Lord, today as we consider the message entitled Making Room, we would ask the question, how, how can we make more room for you in our lives? So take this message, Lord, and find fertile soil, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this message is synonymous to a problem that we have been having all year. And that's finding a place to occupy. You know, businesses are closing. There's no room in the building for the business. Not because the room has been taken away, but circumstances have eliminated the room where the merchant wants to participate in his craft. Churches are closed. So today we are blessed because for the most part, there is no room for Christians to worship. And as we look at the landscape and as we look at the horizon, it doesn't really paint a rosy picture. It paints a picture that's pretty ominous. When restaurant owners say that in a few months or by the middle of next year, maybe 80% of restaurants in New York City might be closed. And we drive around our own town, and we see businesses that have succumbed to the pressures of this new environment. We have gone to our favorite places to eat, only to find that the entire restaurant is bare. Room is disappearing. And as I was thinking about this message, making room, the thought came to my mind, what the devil attempted to do at the first advent of Jesus, he's seeking to do again. He's seeking to eliminate every possible place that Jesus could inhabit. But the good news is, we are the only ones that can close the door to Jesus inhabiting our hearts. He might be able to close the building, but he cannot close our hearts. We are in, for that reason, in a position of grand responsibility to make sure that as businesses are closing and churches are closing and companies are succumbing to the financial pressures of this new environment, that we make time, that we make room for Jesus in our day-to-day, -day, in our week-to-week, 
in our Sabbath to Sabbath, in our Wednesday to Wednesday. I've been praying quite a bit for our church because I remember at the beginning of COVID, even online, we had a lot of church members would, would just tune in. I'm going to try to do some things new in this new year to, to at least help the process go on. But on Zoom, we had a lot of people. But then I, I've been noticing that it's become less and less. And then people that are not in our local area have become more and more. People in California and in Atlanta and in Florida, where they don't even have church, found out that we had Zoom, and they said, hey, we're going to be on that. For those of us who are right here, we need to be mindful that we need to make room. In our busy week, we need to make room for spiritual nourishment. We need to make room, put down the put down the calendar, put down the schedule, put down the thing that's demanding you get it solved and recognize you can only solve it if Jesus is in the mix. Make room, make room for Christ. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Luke. Matthew and Luke are two major contributors to the story and the account of Jesus. And they both do a tremendous job in bringing out the lineage. If you want to have fun, you go ahead and just take time and read in Luke chapter 3, the lineage, the genealogy of Christ through the life of Mary. Matthew records the genealogy of Christ through the life of Joseph. So between a converted tax collector and a converted doctor, They cover the genealogy of both Joseph and Mary. We're going to begin with a word that's so common today. It's amazing that Luke chapter 2 and verse 6 starts with this word. I ask questions nowadays to young people, and they always say, so, and I've said to my wife, have you noticed the young people today, when they start a sentence, they start with the word so, and how fitting this fits right into their vernacular today. Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. So it was that while they were there, that is, while they were there to get registered, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. This passage itself brings out so many divine tidbits, what you call crumbs of bread on the path to a larger revelation. You'll notice that Jesus was Mary's firstborn because he's referred to as the firstborn by God the Father, the preeminent one. Jesus is never second. He's always the first in everything. So the Lord wasn't going to allow Jesus to come as Mary's second child or third child. That would give him, that would take away his preeminence. He had to be her firstborn. So when you read that passage, recognize that that was a divine appointment. And we can only appreciate what the Lord has done when we understand how lineages were passed down in Old Testament times. 
The firstborn was always the one to inherit whatever the father left. Jesus, the firstborn in creation. Jesus, the firstborn. Divinity being born into humanity. Becoming the progenitor of all that would follow in his footsteps. Jesus being the one, the only one that is in the role to inhabit heaven and earth because he is the first. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is always number one. But in order to appreciate what Jesus has done for us, we have to first demonstrate what Jesus has done in us. I want to say that again. In order to appreciate what Jesus has done for us, there needs to be an external demonstration of what Jesus has done in us. You know, the world will never believe that you are a Christian unless it's demonstrated externally. I have, um, I'm still on Facebook, not to post foolishness. But I periodically look, and I had an opportunity, actually on YouTube, to run into a young man who, in the enthusiasm of his theology, put a nice gigantic video, said, Seventh-day Adventists are wrong about the Sabbath. Well, I want you to know he put another piece of wood in my fireplace. <laughs> to say it lightly, Seventh-day Adventists are wrong about the Sabbath. And then he went on to start attacking Ellen White and our belief in her. And then he went on and somebody wrote him and said, in the midst of this environment, the last thing you should be doing is attacking Seventh-day Adventists. Come on, somebody say amen. And I wrote him a letter because he's gaining in popularity in the not in the, in the I don't know that much world. And I said, the reason why I know you don't know a whole lot is because you told people to forget what God said, remember. So who should they listen to, you or God? I said, I challenge you publicly. And I, and, I, and I know you won't accept the challenge because if you do, you better know your Bible. That's not arrogance. That's setting your eyes on them because we should be defenders of the faith. Not to argue with folk, but I said, my greater concern is not what you're saying, but that you're leading honest-hearted people down the wrong path. And so, man, people got on there and began to write and write and write and write. And I thought, how could a man expecting people to believe that Christ is in his life go to war against the very day that the creator of heaven and earth said to remember? But there are people that are misguided. And I was saying to Angie as we were in the car, I said, it's funny, and Joe could appreciate this. If you've been around a long time or any length of time, you could appreciate the fact that it seems like more and more people that are attacking our message it seems like the same stuff being repeated over and over and over and over. Laws nailed to the cross. Sabbath was for the Jews. Be absent from the... Huh? No, that's right. Solomon said, and we're now in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And I thought, well, I'm going to give him a pass. Maybe he's totally honest-hearted. But um, Neil deGrasse Tyson said one of the dangers that we face as humans is 
To know enough to think we are right, but not to know enough to know we are wrong. So pray for those that are still attacking the day that God said to remember. That's why I say in order to appreciate what Jesus has done for us, we have to first demonstrate what Jesus has done in us. There needs to be an internal evidence that will be shown up externally. I was looking at, uh, you know, in our town, we have candy, what's it, candy lane? Candy cane lane? I haven't, dro- I haven't driven down it yet, but it's kind of a yearly thing where people drive down candy cane lane. But I've been noticing that Christmas has been going on for so long that sometimes the message of Christmas gets entangled in the lights and the commercialism, in the spending, in the lists that people are making out. Sometimes the real heart of Christmas gets lost in the commercial side of Christmas. And there's a, there's a, a couple of brothers who was on the news. They started putting together, uh, their Christmas, uh, decorations nine months ago. They wanted to, they put more than a million lights to make the news. A million lights. And the greatest display that they can give is the Christmas lights. A million lights. I just hope he doesn't send me his light bill. God doesn't need a million Christmas lights. He just needs one light lit up to the glory of God. One life lit up to the glory of God. But every time it seems like Christmas is coming earlier and earlier every year, you get the Christmas countdown, sometimes Halloween and Christmas, the decorations are synonymous but it all doesn't make a difference. You'll never appreciate what Jesus has done for us until we display what Jesus has done in us. And it's the day that everybody is counting down to. But if you think that 364 days is a long time to wait for Christmas, try waiting 4,000 years for the greatest gift ever given to humanity. When you think about that great gift, 4,000 years in the making, the birth of Christ, the coming of the rescuer to the human race, the one coming to vindicate the character of God, the one coming, the only one that could defeat again the arch enemy of righteousness. His name is Jesus. We ought to not forget that. The name of Jesus should never become a common name to us. Can somebody say amen? Ellen Weiss says, even when we read the Bible, we should never read it or put it in jest or use a Bible verse to communicate a joke or something hilarious. Always handle divine things with a great sense of reverence. That's what always troubles me when people say, Jesus is my boy, my homie. Oh, no, he's not your homie. He's not your boy. He is the the divine son of God, one who should always be revered, whose name should be always held in highest regard. His name is so powerful that even the demons understand his name is not like any other name. There is no other name that causes demons to tremble like the name of Jesus. I got a call last night from a young lady in our family going through difficulty. While we were reading our Bibles, we had just read in the Remnant Bible, Brian, you know, the the part where it leads up to the chapter, where it tells about the chapter. It walks you through the top verse, the top chapter, the top phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're just in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes when we got a phone call, an urgent phone call from one of the family members. And they said, there's another family member in crisis right now. 
Demons are attacking her. I said, put her on the phone. You can hear her crying with the loudest of voice, screaming on the phone. They're all around me, she said. The demons are, they're right in front of me. I could see them. They're right in front of me. They're attacking me. They're going to kill mom and kill cousin. And they're coming after her and they're coming after him. They said they're going to hurt me and kill the family. And she named the two family members. But I was not afraid at all because I knew that this is a moment for Jesus. I said, listen to me. I didn't even raise my, I didn't even shout. I didn't try to yell and get her attention. I said, mention her name, listen to me. Repeat after me. Pray with me. And she was still hysterical. I said, listen, listen to my voice. Pray with me. I don't want me, I'm not going to pray for you. You're going to pray with me. You're going to say what I say. You're going to repeat it. Okay. Are you ready? Let's repeat it together. And walked her through a prayer. And when the prayer was done, I said, I want you to understand what you just said. And I want you to understand why you just said it. And I want to tell you, after we were done that prayer, I said, I want you to sing with me. You like to sing. And I started with a song she didn't know. She said, I don't know that one. Do you know this one? She said, oh, I know that one. I said, let's sing that together. Jesus loves me. This I know. She started singing that song. And I want to tell you, between the, the, between the, between the frantic screaming at the beginning of the phone call, there was a great calm at the end of the phone call. Calm like she just woke up on a beautiful, warm, sunny morning. Calm. Yes, Uncle John. I'm okay now. I'm okay now. I said, let me tell you why I told you to call on Jesus. Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then I spoke to someone there that was with her, and I said, now what I want you to do is get a Bible for her to read. I've already told her what to read. And I want you to play some Christian music around her. Because the devil cannot stand when Jesus is being glorified. <laughs> they will leave. I said, do you see them now? No. I said, do you know why? No, why? Because you called on Jesus. That's why. Thank you, Uncle John. You see, I'm talking to you today not about a character in our lives. I am talking to you about the potentate of potentates, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one worthy to inhabit the universe's throne. His name is Jesus. Can I get an amen? His name is Jesus. And I want you to understand that as we speak about his name, his name is above all names. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So when you wait for 4,000 years, I want you to know there were two people at least waiting for 4,000 years. On one side, the people of God waiting 4,000 years, not knowing that heaven knows no haste and knows no delay. 
They're waiting for the promised child. But there was somebody else waiting. Satan was waiting, waiting, waiting. But heaven is never late, and heaven is never on a delay. Heaven's time is most precious. As with the second advent, all we've got to do is look at the first advent. People say, we don't know when Jesus is going to come. Let me make a statement I think is very biblical. A lot of people say, well, and I want to put some great respect to this statement. And I believe it, and I've heard it, but I want to put it in the proper context. I've heard people say that until the character of God is fully reproduced in our lives, Jesus won't come. And I believe that that's greatly true to a degree. Let me tell you what I mean. Because there are five wise and five foolish virgins. And the character of God was never reproduced in the lives of the five foolish virgins. But it was in the life of the five wise. Here's how I connect the two. When God chooses you, and you ought to grab this, when God chooses you and he develops his character in your life, then he will come. And we're going to qualify this in the story. Because God did not choose everyone. How many, let me ask a question, how many people did God choose for the appearing of Jesus in the earth? How many? How many? One. Did we forget her name? Mary. Watch this. When the character of God was reproduced in her life, Jesus came. I know you're thinking about it. Zacharias had a tough time. God had to shut him up for nine months or, and more. Elizabeth had a difficulty believing that God could bless her in her old age. Joseph, God had to give him a dream not to put his wife away. But God was looking for one in whose life his character can be developed. And all it takes, my brothers and sisters, is when the Lord chooses us, when he chooses you individually, he's looking for his character to be developed in your life, and then you will be ready for the coming of Jesus. Can you say amen? Now, what I, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say you'll live to the coming of Jesus, but you'll be ready for the coming of Jesus. So my number one aim now has been, Lord, I want your character to be fully reproduced in my life, that whether I live or die, I will be ready for the coming of the Lord. That's why I support strongly the statement of God's servant. When the character of God is fully reproduced in your life, you will be ready for the coming of Jesus. But God has a timing. And the Bible says in Galatians 4 and verse 4 that heaven always has a timing. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. But when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when we read in the verse that we read earlier, and it came to pass in those days, it means the days after the birth of John the Baptist, because John was born before Jesus. But Jesus existed before John. 
wrap your head around that. Born before Jesus, but Jesus existed before John. How powerful is that? The Bible made it clear at the predetermined hour, Jesus pulled out his earthbound itinerary. Now, you just, you just missed that. I am so glad. Let me try. with. I am so glad that Jesus had an earthbound itinerary. What do you say, Ramona? Because he had me in mind. He had you in mind. He had us in mind. He pulled out an earthbound itinerary. He stepped out of eternity into time. He laid aside his royal robe in favor of a manger. He departed the courts of heaven with no guarantee to return. He traded the praise of angels for the plotting of demons. He did all that because he wanted to save us. So everything that happened in the life of Jesus was necessary. We go now to verse 2 and verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The events at the time of the birth of Jesus were necessary for the plan of heaven to be accomplished. And Dr. Luke writes, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, showing the extent of the Roman government. And the Bible says in verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, some translations write taxed, others write registered, but I like the word here, census, because it includes two things. When you think about the census, as it was taken in the days of Christ, the census was to determine two things. It was to register your roots. In other words, where were you from? So Bob, if the census was taken, they'd say, Bob, go to the place of your birth and we will register you there. But it was not only to register where you were born, it was also to take into account your property. Registering not only what you owned, but where you were from. And so no matter where you were or what you owned, when the census was taken, you had to return to the place of your lineage. Now, this is vitally important because verse 3 of Luke chapter 2 makes this clear. That's the purpose of verse 3 of Luke chapter 2. Notice what it says. It says, so how many? All went to be registered, everyone to what? His own city. Now, let's think about the quandary here. If your wife was from West Frankfurt and you were from Chicago... <laughs> I'll be back in a couple of weeks. One has to go one place, one has to go the other. That's how the law was in those days. Everyone had to go to his own city to be registered. The good news is Joseph and Mary lived in their own city, and that city was Nazareth. So they went to their own city. And according to some customs, Caesar not only registered them by city name, but more importantly, by ancestral distinction. In other words, let's follow your lineage all the way back, and you go to that city to be registered. Let's go to Matthew 1 and verse 17, and this is the purpose for this text. Matthew 1 and verse 17. Matthew 1 and verse 17. As you read this now, remember, all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Notice the words in Matthew 1 verse 17. So all the generations... From Abraham to David are how many? 
14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon, all what? 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, are what? 14 generations. But what was being pointed out is where you live is not as important as where you are from. All the lineage was being traced. People were showing allegiance, first and foremost, to their ancestral origin. That's why Luke chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 brings out the next point. I'm giving you some background before we dive into the heart of the message. Look at verse 4 and 5 of Luke chapter 2. The Bible tells us, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into where? Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth, but they had to go back to their lineage because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went there for what reason? To be registered with Mary, his engaged wife or betrothed wife, who was with child. Very interesting point that's brought out here. To travel while Mary is near delivery meant that the census was not optional. I want you to grab that. Because what woman in her right mind would travel that distance, roughly about 70 miles, on a donkey if it wasn't a mandatory thing? They had to go to the place of their lineage. So there they are. Some people suggest that Mary intentionally went to Bethlehem because she understood the prophecies. But that's not the reason why she went. Mary went because God was directing their footsteps. They went according to the direction of God. Here's my point. It is not always important for us to know, but it is important for us to follow the directing hand of God. Because the distance to travel, the mode of transportation, and the lateness of her pregnancy laid bare the theory that she wanted to go to Bethlehem. No woman would want to go on a donkey 70 miles while they're pregnant with child. Ladies, please say amen. I mean, nobody would want to do that. Who would want to do that? On a donkey? Not an air-conditioned donkey either. On a donkey. No shock absorbers, just good old donkey legs. 70 miles, 2,550 feet elevation, climbing up to Zion while you're pregnant on a donkey. I thought about that, and I said to myself, there's got to be a lesson in that. I pray for lessons for God to bring them out. And I thought to myself, when your life seems challenging and your journey seems rough, you may be on your way to God's divine revelation. I'll say it a different way. When the road before you seems rough and the journey seems challenging and it's something that you would rather not do, you need to be obedient because God is about to reveal to you heaven's divine blessing. I want to tell you the road is not always easy. The road before us is not always easy. It's not, but if you're following the Lord, it's not optional. Mary could have said, I don't want to go. You go. I'll be here when I get, when you get back. And she had every biological reason to stay behind. But she was obedient to the Lord and she was supportive of her husband. 
And she knew that following God's will, she made that decision a long time ago. When Gabriel appeared to her, she says, let it be according to your word. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. When you make up your mind as a young person to say that your life could be according to God's word, you begin to create a cadence and a habit so that when God guides and God leads your life, it doesn't matter whether or not he's sending you on a challenging journey, but you, because you've come to the place where you know that the journey may be rough, but at the end of that journey, God has a divine blessing in store for each one of us. But I found another thing, and I know you're going to grab this. It is a good thing that the census happened before Jesus was born. <laughs> grab this for a moment, Joe. And hold on, don't let him get away, Nancy. If Jesus was born, and they said that Jesus had to return to the place of his lineage, he would have taken Mary and Joseph to heaven with him. If they said, you need to take that child to the place of his lineage, are you getting it? They said to Jesus, you need to take him where he's from. He would have taken his mom and dad to heaven. Come on, somebody, grab it with me. So it's good that he wasn't born yet because they limited the lineage to earthbound people. You can't limit Jesus' lineage to the earth because he is from eternity. In the beginning was God. It's a good thing. Let's look, into, let's look into his lineage. Go with me to Psalms chapter 90 and verse 1 and 2. Let's go to see some qualifying words into the lineage of Jesus. And I have these texts from the King James Version. I just love the language of the King James Version when it comes to Psalm. He really, really brings it out beautifully. He says about the lineage of Jesus, he says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from together, everlasting to what? Everlasting, thou art God. It's a good thing that Jesus was not assigned to go to the place of his birth. He would have taken Mary and Joseph to heaven with him. I'll say amen myself. Amen. I ain't asking y'all to say nothing. <laughs> David the psalmist said in Psalm 93 and verse 2, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Moses, can you imagine Jesus taking Mary and Joseph to everlasting? I'm looking forward to going to the city one day called Everlasting. Come on, somebody, help me out. Jesus is saying, today we're going on a journey where? To Everlasting. You guys need some postum or something. <laughs> one day we are going to go on a journey to Everlasting. And we're going to see the lineage of Jesus. But it's hard to comprehend that God would come down here. Psalm 8, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. Look there with me. It's hard to comprehend that God would come down here for us. But look at Psalm 8, verse 1 
and then verse 3 to 4. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name and how much? All the earth. Look at the picturesque language of the psalmist David. Who have set your glory above the heavens? That's Jesus. He says, when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you do what? Visit him. Praise God, Jesus came to visit us. And the good news is we're not going to go to visit him one day. We're going to go to be with him one day. That's why when atheists say they can't find, they can't find evidence that God exists, they can't find God for the same reason. A thief can't find a police. God hasn't hidden himself. They just don't want to look where God will be found. People deny the existence of God because of cognitive agreement or disagreement. But I want to tell you the reason why is because if they admit that God exists, it's going to require a change in their behavior. That's why people don't want to believe that God exists. I don't believe in God. If you did, it'll require a change in the way you live. That's the reason why people don't accept God, because he's not a God that's accepted unconditionally. He is a God that is always accepted on condition. There's a condition to living for Christ. There's a condition calling him our Lord. There needs to be a difference in how we live our lives. And so we find that Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem because they were humble enough to allow divine providence to direct their paths. And David the psalmist writes once again, in Psalms 37, verse 23, these powerful words. Why did they end up in Bethlehem? Here's the reason why. The steps, let's read this together. The steps of a good man are what? Ordered by the Lord, and he does what? He delights in his way. What, what does that mean? The Lord delights in the steps of a good man. And when he delights in the steps of a good man, he knows that he can order that man's step because that man is not going to argue with where God is leading him. You ever been where you don't want to be? Only to find out maybe a few years later that's where God wanted you to be? <laughs> I could identify with Karen. I can't count the many times that Karen said, I don't want to be community services leader. But God put it on my heart and look at the success now. Can you say amen? She said, I don't want to be a community service leader, but God won't let me go. But when you follow a divine appointment, you receive a divine blessing. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And by the way, that is not having to do with not including woman. The word there is not gender specific. When a person allows their steps to be ordered by the Lord, God delights in the way that that person goes. We have to be willing to follow how or where God leads before he will do in us what he wills. Let's go to Luke chapter 2 and verse 6. Because a life that's surrendered to God doesn't worry about how, what, or where, and when. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 6, So it was... While they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. While they were there, the days were completed 
for her to be delivered. I don't know if it's a problem or a blessing, but when I read the Bible, so many things jump out at me when I read a text. It's not just what I read, but I see something else, and I believe that God gives me the insight to see it. Because notice what it says, the days were completed for her to be delivered, which said to me, God will not allow our blessing to come until the day ordained for that blessing to be completed. So what is that saying to us? Wait on the Lord. What is that saying to us? Wait on the Lord. What is that saying to us? Be patient. God has a day. Everything about our lives is ordained by God. God has a day when he is going to reveal to you the reason for your journey, the reason for your trial, the reason for the decisions that he has led you to make. God has a day that his blessings will be completed. If we are only patient and wait on the Lord, the days will come that God will deliver to us the blessing of our lives. I know that to be the fact. When we were praying about being in the ministry, way, way back in 1987, way back then, you have to be careful when you pray not to accept the first thing that comes your way. Because the devil sometimes hears your prayer and tries to divert God's blessing. So we were praying, Lord, open this door, open that door. And two other answers came before the one from God came. And every time they came, I said, let's pray about it. And when we prayed about it, the Lord confirmed to us, that's not my call. Then another one came. Now, who wouldn't want to go to the Virgin Islands to be a pastor? I mean, that's a, that's a place to pastor. Who wouldn't want to be a pastor in Hawaii? That's a place to be a pastor. But a call came to go to the Virgin Islands. Beautiful, sunny St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands. I said, wow, that's the sunny Caribbean. Well, let's pray about it. And the Lord said, that's not my call. And then Pastor Doug kept calling me. Come on out to California. I said, I'm not coming till the Lord says come. He said, the Lord is telling you to come. That's why I called you. <laughs> I said, I'm not coming till the Lord tells me to come. Not Doug tells me to come. He said, but the meetings already began. I need you here. I said, Doug, I'm not coming till the Lord tells me to come. See, Pastor Doug was in an evangelistic series, and I was being hired to be his evangelist to work along with him. And he said, the meetings already began. I need you here. I said, I'm not coming till the Lord tells me to come. He said, but the meetings already began. I said, that's okay. And about a week later, the Lord told me to go. When the conference called and said, God is calling you to come, will you accept? And my wife and I prayed about it while we packed. <laughs> you will know when God's call comes. There's no hesitation. When God's call comes, there should be no hesitation in your life. That's why this verse seems so relevant to me, because there are days that God knows the blessing will not come until God's calendar is completed, until the time comes for God's blessing to occur. Wait on the Lord. Can you say that together? Wait on the Lord. It will come in God's timing. So now Mary and Joseph are there, and we now go to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. Let's peek at that together, the scripture reading. Matthew and Joseph, I mean, Mary and Joseph are where God led them to be. 
God will not allow the blessing to come until the days are ordained for them to be completed. And Mary and Joseph now stands before the conveyor belt of heaven to receive the most precious cargo of all time. And here it is, surrounded by braying animals, sheep and, and goats and calves. The Bible gives a message to Joseph. And she will bring forth a son. And you shall call his name, what? Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. I received the magazine Christianity Today. If you really want to find out what's happening in the Christian world on, the large, on a larger scale, don't just get Adventist Review, but get Christianity Today. It gives me a picture of the entire Christian world and what's happening out there. And I can tell you, when you get into the nitty-gritty of theology and the ecclesiology in the Christian world and all the different denominations and all the different belief systems and all the different isms and schisms and systems that are in harmony and out of harmony and are in conflict and are at odds with one another, when you begin to get into all the quagmire of Christianity, sometimes the simplicity of Jesus gets lost. And then it becomes contention on one point or disagreement on the other or evangelicalism versus Catholicism versus Protestantism versus Christianity versus atheism. All these isms begin to come into play. And it is Satan's determined purpose to get the people of God so confused by all the paraphernalia of Christianity that the most potent blessing is missed, the person of Jesus. But I need to add, but I need to add something else. It's also imperative that when you accept Jesus, you accept all the conditions that come along with him, the conditions of obedience and walking in the light as he is in the light, the conditions of honoring his commandments, living in harmony with the law of God, the condition of being a disciple rather than just a church member. When you begin to understand the conditions, then and only then will this text become a reality in your life. He doesn't save his people just from their sins, he saves them so that others can also be saved from their sins. God is calling us to be workmen in this hour of challenge. God is calling us to be the vessels through which somebody else learns about the greatest gift ever given. What good is a gift if you only share it with yourself? A gift is a gift is a gift if somebody else can enjoy the gift with you. God gives us the gift of eternal life that we might share that gift with somebody else who doesn't even know the gift is not only Jesus, but far deeper than that. Look at Matthew 1 and verse 23. It was not just Jesus, but it was a divine union visiting earth at the same time. Verse 23 of Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which is translated what? God with us. And those two statements together is saying that not only that God comes with the person of a son, but his son is very much God as he is. And that's a hardship nowadays that people are challenged by and struggling over. Is Jesus God? Is God Jesus? Let the Bible be the Bible. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is very much God. Can somebody say amen? Now people are struggling over whether or not the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit or the third person of the Godhead. Don't get confused 
When you start messing with the, with the pre-arranged fabrication of your salvation, you put your life in jeopardy, except divinity for divinity's sake. But Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 now brings us to the apex of the story. To the apex of the story. And the Bible says she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in what? Swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I did some research about that swaddling cloths and I came to find out that even at his birth, Jesus was wrapped in the discarded garments of the high priest. He wasn't wrapped in torn clothing found in the manger. Jesus was wrapped in the discarded garments of the high priest, meaning even at his birth, he was declared to be the priest over all of us. The discarded garments of the high priest, even at his birth, a little baby, helpless yet surrounded by the best secret service man can ever hope to have. The angels of God, Guarding the footsteps of the tender baby Jesus. The angels of glory dispatched to watch and listen to his every cry and attend his every whim. The angels of heaven attending, making sure that the mission of Christ would be successful. And all that Jesus wanted was to be able to find room in us. You see, my brothers and sisters, this message, Making Room, it's not about Jesus being in a manger or Jesus being in a holiday inn or Jesus being in a Sheraton hotel. The story is about Jesus trying to find room in our lives. The story of the season, how could there be room for the one who owns everything? He doesn't want to own anything. He wants to own us. He doesn't want another universe. He owns the universe. He came down to occupy the space within us, to be in our hearts and to be in our lives. And so the message of this sermon today is, Jesus did not come to make room for himself. Jesus came to make room for us. Can the church say amen? He has all the room in the world. He has all the room in the universe, but he came to make arrangements for another mansion for me, another place that I can walk one day. Jesus came to make room for us. He did not come looking for room in the inn. He came looking for room in our hearts and in our lives. And with all the quagmire of 2020, we cannot go into 2021 saying, I don't have room for Jesus in my daily devotions. We cannot go into 2021 and say, I will attend when I find the time. Oh, if Jesus can find the time to make room for you, you got to find the time to make room for him. Your life will never be transformed. Your life will never be changed. There'll be no difference in you except Christ is there. Jesus was willing to settle for the worst so that he can offer us his best. Somebody ought to say amen. He made room. Jesus was willing to lie down among the lowest that one day we will be able to walk among the highest. He made room. He was willing to be put down and put out so that one day we will be able to be lifted up and invited in. That's the God I want to serve. What about you? The story of making room is not about a hotel or a barn. It's about whether he's going to be in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your marriage, in your family. Is God going to be there for the new year? If that's your plan, make 
room for Jesus today. Somebody ought to say amen. But to in order to appreciate what Jesus has done for us, we have to be willing to demonstrate what Jesus has done in us. And the demonstration can only occur if you make room in your life for Jesus. And so I end with the text. What he was seeking then, he is still seeking today. Revelation chapter 3, the text of the season. Is he looking for room today? Yes, he is. He says in his word, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. I'll dine with your family. I'll dine with your children, and they will dine with me. I can't think of anybody better to dine with than with Jesus. Come on, somebody. My wife and I had a chance to go to the White House a few years ago, and we were invited into the lunchroom of our president. We saw where Donald Trump sits. We had pictures of his divine, of, of, of his presidential plate. And they said, that's his fork, that's his knife, that's his spoon, and that's his seat. And I felt special. And they said, we have something else. We're going to invite you to the Kennedy Center today, and we're going to let you sit in his seat. You'll be in the president's seat, seat number one, and your wife will be in his wife's seat, seat number two. And here's your special invitation from the president of the United States. And I thought, wow. And it says, and I still have the invitation. The president of the United States would like to extend a personal invitation to John Lomacang to be a guest at the Kennedy Center. And I sat in seat number one. My wife sat in seat number two. And I felt special all that day. We were invited into his special chambers where you needed a special code to get in. And people stood at the door to make sure that no one gets in except those who are invited in. And they said, here's the code to his refrigerator. Whatever's in his refrigerator is yours. You can take it home. And we have paraphernalia at home from the president's fridge. But he's now passing off the scene and somebody else is going to be in that chamber. Somebody else is going to sit in that seat. And I said, that's the way of humanity. But friends, there's another seat that's being set for me. There's another set of silverware. I'm tickled just to say that. There's another... There's another set of silverware being set for us. There's another chamber through which there needs to be a special invitation to get in. And God is going to put us who are obedient and who love him with all of our hearts into seat number one. And seat, you're going to feel like you're in seat number one no matter where you sit. Are you looking forward to that day? You'll only be able to get into that room if you decide today to make room for Jesus. If you want to make room for Christ, and now I want to ask you this question humbly and soberly, and I want you to think about it. Because I know the challenges of this environment. Not all of us have internet, I understand that. But I appreciate the sacrifices that some of you make. And I know it's not easy. When some of you drive great distances to make it to church, I appreciate that. 
But I don't want to put you out of the way when difficulty arises. If you're challenged by anything, God understands that. I am not the judge. But I want to tell you, if you're making room for Christ in your own home, in your daily life, in your devotional life, God is getting you ready for the room in his glorious kingdom. So today, if you want to make room for Christ, begin. Don't wait till January 2021. Start even now. So that when January comes, you can say, I'm already into it. I'm already making room for Christ every day. And when you make room for Christ, he knows. It's amazing how God calls us while we're tabernacling with him. God says, okay, now you're ready to handle that phone call that's about to come. If you're living for your own life, God's not going to put you in circumstances that you're going to foul up. But God is only going to put you there when it's for his glory. So you want to make room for Christ? Why don't you stand with me so we can pray? And ask God to speak to us, to make room in our hearts, to give us that divine understanding that the room that is there is a room that he wants to occupy. Gracious Father in heaven, how amazing it is, how amazing it is that you always find ways to make room for us. Father, may we, not just out of respect, but out of the sense of deep gratitude, find places to make room for you. There should not be anything so pressing in this world that you cannot fit into that space, that we cannot turn off the television or put down the phone or put the computer to sleep or let the machine answer the phone call. When we are in your presence and when you are in our presence. But Father, this world has been doing all it can to make the places for Jesus to occupy as few and far between as we have seen with all the churches that are closed today. And yet, the ironic thing is you didn't come to occupy buildings. You came to live in the hearts of your people. And there's no prohibition in this world that can close the heart's door other than each of us individually. So lead us, Lord, to open that door, whether at our desk at work, whether at our lunch hour, whether in the morning before we go out or in the evening when we come in. When we wake up early, we give you praise, and before we go to bed, we tabernacle with you. May we have such a life that we are used to you being in our presence because we desire so much to be in your presence. And then and only then will those around us desire to emulate that they too can experience what it means to make room for Jesus. Thank you for carrying us through the days behind us. Now carry us by commitment through the days ahead of us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.